Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Well, you might think the world is falling apart, but here at the home of common sense, we're going to be setting you straight. We are not running out of HGV drivers, we are not running out of petrol, and we are also not running out of CO2 or anything else. Turkeys, pigs in blankets, mushrooms, broccoli, apples... We're not running out of anything. The only reason there's a problem is because there are an awful lot of stupid people out there uh, who think that actually just because somebody says don't panic, you must immediately do the complete opposite and panic. Well done. Congratulations to all of you numpties out there who have managed to cause a fuel shortage by insisting on filling up your cars when you didn't actually need to. And a special prize goes to those people who turned up over the weekend at various different petrol stations with a load of jerry cans. Because the best thing to do for me is to drive around uh, very, very fast in a car with massive explosives in the back of it. Well done. Unless you're planning on a terrorist attack, I really don't think you should have more than one jerry can, which sits somewhere very far away from your house, just in case your lawnmower runs out of petrol. I mean, really? Really? Is this where we have come? You know, up in Hull, people are actually queuing for Santa's Grotto. This weekend. September. For heaven's sake, people, do get a grip. The one thing that does seem to be in very short supply is intelligence. The intelligence to know that if you don't need to buy something right this minute, there is no need to do so. The intelligence to understand that if you do start buying things in a panic, along with everyone else, the supplies of those things will more than likely dry up. And the intelligence to work out that fighting over a petrol pump is probably one of the most stupid things you could ever do. I sometimes swear to myself that evolution is actually now going in reverse. People are actually getting thicker rather than more intelligent. This morning we'll be attempting to reset Britain, a country that used to be sensible, but has now careered out of control thanks to selfishness and obsession with consumerism and buying up everything in the shop. I mean, there were people crowding into a Christmas grotto. There are people buying 55 different versions of cornflakes now. We don't really need it, do we? We'll be seeking the counsel this morning of Tory MP Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, a member of the COVID Recovery Group, and, of course, also uh, Deputy Chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. We'll get his take on what's going on. Uh, We'll also be talking to Andrew Allison from the Freedom Association, uh, who's got a bit of experience in how to run HGV lorries in the army. Now, we'll find out whether the army's actually going to make any difference if they come in. Probably not. Just make people panic a bit more, won't they? Do you know, this morning, apparently there were people following an oil tanker actually following it to see where it would stop and then hoping to get petrol out of it but it wasn't a petrol tanker it was an oil tanker that delivers home heating oil i mean really is that how thick people have become oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand peter hitchens is here we'll need to take your calls as well this is 
Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So let's hear your stories for the weekend, shall we? Because you know what the number is, 03444991000, right? Everyone will have a story, OK? Uh, I was in Sussex at the weekend, and as you might have expected, there were several places uh, where people could queue up for petrol and several places where people did queue up for petrol. There were several places where the petrol actually ran out. Julie Hartley Brewer this morning, I think, uh, completely and utterly kind of describes what happened to an awful lot of people. Julia, uh, a normally sensible individual, decided it was a good idea to fill up her car with petrol, even though she doesn't really use it very much. And if you imagine the numbers of people who did that, that's why there was suddenly a shortage. I drove back into London yesterday evening around about sort of 7.30, 8 o'clock, and I come in via a place called Sidcup on the A20, and there's a big petrol station there. I think it's a shell uh, on a big corner. Um, And there were people literally trying to get into that petrol station from four different roads, right? Which meant that the the rain road was blocked. Now, this is not sensible behaviour, ladies and gentlemen. I know that an awful lot of people do need petrol. And Julia made the point that, you know, it's all very well for people who live in London who can travel around on public transport without any fear or favour. But if you live out in the country and you have to take your children to school, you can only drive them there. If you live somewhere where you live a long way from where you work, you can only get to uh, work by driving there. I get all that. And some people do need petrol. But there is no question that when you see a petrol station that normally sells 8,000 litres on a Friday selling 24,000 this Friday, then you know that there's three times the numbers of people filling up their cars when they don't really need to. And that, for me, is a problem. There was no fuel crisis. There was no fuel shortage. Now there is one. There wasn't really an HGV crisis either. There wasn't really a shortage of anything. I mean, I have still yet to see an empty shelf in any supermarket that I've been to over the course of the last couple of weeks. I've still yet to see, if I order something to be delivered to my house, anything missing. So where is all this talk of missing items coming from? Where is all this talk of shortages coming from? Do you know? Because I don't. Nobody has ever said to me, oh, you can't buy any cornflakes this week. You can't buy any shredded wheat. You can't buy any muesli. You can't buy any milk. We're all out of it. Because the shortages, it seems to me, are being rather overhyped. You know, we've got stories on the front of all sorts of papers this morning. Front page of the Sun, quite rightly saying 90% of garages are dry. Drivers are trading punches. Ministers urging calm. And its headline is Panic Monday. And I mean, I don't understand why people are panicking. I really don't. Do you really need to fill your car up with petrol? As I said, what I did last night uh, was I waited because I knew there would be a place where I wouldn't have to queue. I'm not interested in queuing. I just don't do it. I don't queue for uh, football matches. I don't queue for uh, parking spaces. I don't queue for petrol. So I I drove past the place somewhere in Sussex yesterday on the A21 and uh, I pulled in, didn't wait more than... um, half a nanosecond because there was nobody at the pump. I got out. There was a sign on the pump that said, please don't have more than £30. So I put £30 worth of petrol into my car, diesel actually. Um, And I thought that'll do me probably for the next couple of weeks. So absolutely fine. One of the reasons there wasn't a queue was probably because people were being sensible. I also did the other sensible thing, which a lot of people don't do. When you fill your car up, you go and move the car, park it somewhere so somebody else can fill their car up and it all goes a lot quicker. Do you know what I mean? Let's talk to Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, Conservative MP, Deputy Chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. Hopefully, he, like me, will agree that actually there's not a problem out there. Sir Geoffrey, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very well. I've just spent the last sort of uh, 10 minutes or so slagging off the idiots who have caused what appears to be a bit of a shortage of petrol, the petrol crisis, when they really didn't need to. 
Well, what it, what it seems to have happened, or at least it's, from my area, there was huge queues on Friday and particularly on Saturday. But by yesterday, uh, the queues seem to have subsided back down to normal. Yes. So I'm hoping hoping that people have got realised that they you know there is no shortage of petrol and that they they can fill up in the normal way. The one thing that does seem to have happened this morning is that some of the bus companies over the weekend have been very short of diesel and some students have not got uh, to their college this morning. But again, I hopefully that'll only be temporary for today. Yeah, well, I dare say there'll be plenty of them that never make it on a Monday morning because they can't get up in time. So I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that a crisis, to be honest. <laughs> but I mean, we are. I mean, we do seem to be living now in a world where people are willing to, uh, to panic about almost anything, you know. As soon as somebody says, don't panic, which is exactly what Grant Shapps said, I think, on Thursday, everybody immediately does the complete opposite. I know. It's very short term. If they're just, as I say, but I think what this is all sort of shorts showed is that there were a few shortages in BP garages. The media were stupid enough to hype it up as though there might be a petrol shortage. I think that was a major part of the problem. And then people reacted to that. If they just said there's a, there's a few, temp, a very few BP garages that haven't been able to get enough petrol, but it's going to be resolved quite quickly, don't worry, then I think the whole thing would have been far less um, serious. Yes. I mean, one of the things that I'm told is the case, and I don't know whether you know about this, is that the BP report, which was leaked to the media was actually a report based on the last three months rather than the last three days uh, of their business. So when they said that, you know, they'd had to force close four four or five petrol stations, it was actually over the period of three months. It wasn't overnight and it certainly wasn't because of anything that had happened last week. It was purely and simply a report about the business of of petrol uh, in the last three months. I'm sure that's right. I don't know the full details, but whatever it was, it was really quite small and I know the media have to make a story out of things, but this really wasn't very responsible. And I hope that perhaps we can all learn to be a little bit more cautious in the future when potentially lives were at risk if ambulances couldn't fill up and so on. This was really not a very sensible way for us all to proceed. No, no, exactly right. And I mean, it's all very well to blame the media, I suppose. But, you know, you could also say to people like Grant Shapps, what is the point of telling people not to panic? if you know that when you do that, the exact opposite will happen. Well, he's got a job to do. Uh, All he can really do is go on the media and say, don't panic, this is the situation, and hope that people take notice. Well, I suspect that they did take notice, because as I say, if my constituency is anything to go by, by yesterday, the situation had got fairly well back to normal. Yes, exactly right. Now, let's talk a little bit about normal, because we keep hearing, and you can tell me perhaps how much of this uh, is something that we should worry about and how much of it is something we shouldn't, uh, shortage of HGV drivers. However, there's a shortage of HGV drivers all over Europe, so offering visas for people to come in is not necessarily the answer. Similarly, I was hearing this morning that if there is to be the army introduced into the uh, equation, that really won't make much difference anyway for at least another week, will it? Well, what I think about all of this, Mike, is that actually government should be uh, seeing some of these problems a little bit further out before they happen. And I think it was that the signs were there several weeks ago there was a problem, and they then should have started acting, getting the army in quicker to avoid some of these shortages. And I also think that the, 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 the furlough has gone on too long. Um, and the government should make it flexible so that those that now want to come off furlough and are not going to get their jobs back have the opportunity to have a rapid training in, in how to become an HGV 
driver and the pay now is sufficient that it ought to attract a lot of new entrants wanting to become HGV drivers. So I think the government needs to be looking at these problems a little bit further out. Well, it terms, seems to me, having spoken to quite a few HGV drivers and people in the business over the last few days, that there's a lot more to it than there simply being a shortage of drivers. You know, there's a shortage of people working in the DVLA because they're all working from home. As civil servants, surely the government should be ordering them back to work, get on with the business of, of actually issuing licences and get on with the business of issuing, you know, proper availability for HGV drivers to get on with their jobs. Secondly, uh, one of the reasons is that an awful lot of the EU-based drivers went back to the EU and they're now uh, being paid better in this country. So the drivers here are more than happy for there to be fewer drivers. It just so, just so happens that uh, that may not suit the supply chain as much as it should do. So there's all manner of different sort of, you know, pressures on the, on, on the, on the consumer um, food chain and on, on everything else. But, you know, surely that's something that overall the government should be looking at. Well, it, of course it should, and it should have been looking at it several weeks ago. And the army have a role to play here in two parts. One is that they do have quite a lot of HGV trained soldiers, and that would be helpful. Mm. But also they have trained HGV soldiers who could actually supervise and train people to, for the HGV test. And another aspect of what you were saying is dead right. I think some of the workers at DVLA have not been as cooperative as they might have been uh, during the pandemic, not only on the HGV uh, test side, but also on a number of other driving license issue cases, which I've had in my constituency. And really to start sort of being uncooperative in the middle of a COVID period is very, very unhelpful and unconsiderate of what's going on in the rest of society. Yes, well, I think so. And also just broad, more broadly, I mean, do you think, as I do, that we actually have got to a point in society where we are so driven by consumerism? that there is this kind of bloodlust almost for shopping for almost everything. I mean, there's a story this morning that I'm reading that there was a queue um, and massive numbers of people trying to get into Santa's Grotto at some shopping centre in, um, uh, in Hull up in the north uh, of, of England because people were worried that they might not be able to get some Christmas stuff and people were buying Christmas lights and buying, you know, Christmas ornaments and shopping for Christmas in, you know, September. It seems crazy to me. Well, I agree, but this is all part of this panic mode, and it's all, I think, a hangover from COVID. People were locked up so long, mm. they became so frustrated that when they were unlocked, that all they wanted to do was go and spend the money that they'd saved. So I don't think you can blame them for that, but, but I think people just ought to be sensible. There will be, I think, supplies. There will be maybe not every bit of food that everybody would want, but enough food, enough Christmas presents for everybody. Uh, and people should just be a bit sensible about it all. Well, that's what I think. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the one good thing that's come out of the last week or so is that nobody's mentioned COVID at all. I mean, you're part of the COVID recovery group. Uh, I don't even know if you're even still meeting, are you? Well, we're still in touch, uh, very much so, because we've got key votes coming up on whether to uh, vote, re vote for the renewal of the emergency powers. We've got to sort out the traffic light system. Uh, we've got to sort out track and trace. We've got to sort out injection of children. So there's still lots and lots of issues that need to be addressed. Let's talk about injection of children first up, because that began the rollout uh, as of last week. There's still people arguing that, you know, it's safer for everybody if children get vaccinated. I maintain uh, it's still the parents' view uh, that counts. And if parents do not wish to have their children vaccinated, then they should not be pressurised into doing it. I entirely agree with that, Mike. It should be the parents' choice uh, uh, talking to the children, because after all, if anything goes wrong, 
it's the parents that have to look after the ch children that might be affected. Yeah, right. uh, I think the problem comes when others, medics or whoever, try to put pressure on the children to go against the parental advice. And that is what I said in the Commons. It sets a very dangerous precedent because it could not only be for injections of COVID, uh, it could be for all sorts of medical procedures. Yeah. So I think by and large, we should be very, very clear that the parents who have responsibility for children under 16, by and large, should have the major say over this area. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the schools are treating it very differently from the way they were treating the testing. We were told as well um, by many schools that come the end of September, um, there would be a review of the testing procedure. Many people now believe that testing perfectly well and fit children is a waste of time and money. I agree with that. I mean, there's very, very little evidence that children get seriously ill uh, from the COVID. They may, although there's not a lot of evidence this, pass it on, but quite, but quite honestly, now such a high proportion of the population have had two vaccinations that they're probably uh, immune to the disease anyway. So I think by concentrating in this area of children, we're doing them all a disservice. We're interrupting their schooling. And goodness sake, after all the interruption they've had, they now need to get back to normal schooling with teaching in the classrooms as soon as possible. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Stay with us, Sir Geoffrey, if you would. We've got a lot of other things I want to talk to you about, including, of course, Labour Party conference, which is currently ongoing. Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, Conservative MP, Deputy Chairman of the Public Accounts Committee, with us still here at Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And right now, Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown is with us, though, Conservative MP and Deputy Chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. Labour Party conference underway. Your turn next week, uh, Sir Geoffrey. Um, Angela Rayner uh, thinks you're all a bunch of uh, scum, homophobic, racist, misogynistic, absolute pile of banana republic Etonians. Um, you happen to have gone to Eton. You seem like a reasonable chap to me, Sir Geoffrey. Well, as um, Mandy Rice Davis would say, she would say that, wouldn't she? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I mean, <laughs> the job of the opposition, I suppose, is to oppose. I, I always think in politics, actually, there's not a lot of point in being... Uh, overtly rude um i mean there's obviously like all parties there's good and bad in every party uh, i think that what we've got to do is just get on with the job and what the labor party got to do is try and get themselves out of the mess that they're in and try and get them uh, to a position where they might conceivably in many years time win an election um, and that is what they're desperately trying to do at the moment. Yes, I don't think they've got much chance of that as uh, as long as Angela Rayne is sitting there. I mean, she loves talking to the converted and you could hear by the cheers that went up when she was saying those things that that is the problem the Labour Party have got. You know, there's still people reporting that they're being thrown out of meetings, uh, which are supposed to be meetings to discuss the anti-Semitism in the party. You know, the party now for a long time has definitely, as far as I'm concerned, been the nasty party. It's not a very nice place to live. No, I know that um, from, um, you know, some of the rows. I, I, I talk to some of the Labour MPs and some of the rows, the nastinesses that go on in their constituency is, is unbelievable. But the Labour Party have a real problem because it, uh, in, when Jeremy Corman twice stood for the leadership, um, a million and a half left wing members were elected. Um, and some of those people are from the hard left. 
So they have a real problem how they're going to sort themselves out. And uh, I suppose I, one can't blame Keir Starmer at all for trying to get the party into a party that is conceivably electable, which at the moment it isn't. Yes. Let's just go back to COVID for a moment, Sir Geoffrey. I mean, the, the, the vaccination passport question uh, is happening in Scotland. It's happening in Wales. Can you be sure that it won't be happening here? No, I absolutely can't be sure, uh, but I am dead opposed to it. As I've said many times on uh, your radio and others, uh, it's not the way we do things in this country to produce a phone or a piece of paper to get into an event. And furthermore, it, co- it causes the dis- divisions uh, between young and old, those that have had the vaccine, those that haven't. Uh, I hope we never will get into a situation in this country where the vaccines become compulsory. And if that's so, everybody has a right not to have a vaccine mm. if they don't wish the vast bulk of the British people have had vaccines, including myself. Um, but I just think that a vaccine passport would be totally alien. The only place I can see for a vaccine passport is that I think an individual country can say to people coming into that country, you cannot come in here unless you've got a vaccine passport. Mm. And that's been the system for a very, very long time with polio, with yellow fever, with all sorts of diseases we've had to have vaccines. And I think that is fair enough. But to do it on an internal basis where people can't get in to see a football match or a concert or whatever, I just think is wrong. Yes, I think you're absolutely right about that. And finally, Sir Geoffrey, the energy crisis, which genuinely could become a crisis out of all of the things that we're told are in crisis. I think the energy prices really, really are because an awful lot of people are going to be seeing their bills um, double in some cases come October. um, And a lot of people are going to be unable to pay those bills. So... I raised this in the Public Accounts Committee with Bayes a week ago, and there are a number of factors in all of this. But suffice it to say that had we not run down our gas storage in the way that we have compared to other European countries, we wouldn't be in as serious a situation Mm. as we are now. And I think we've got to be very, very wary of this short-term political thinking. The same applies to food. We're all busy saying, well, we don't need to produce food in this country. We cannot plant all the land with trees and other environmental schemes. We can buy it all from abroad. And uh, I think we want to be very, very wary of that policy. Yes, I think that's right. I think it's time for us to become much more self-sufficient. So, Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, MP, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Chairman, Deputy Chairman of the Public Accounts Committee, very concerned about vaccine passports, very concerned about the rollout of vaccinations for children, very concerned about the energy prices. But that is where we are right now. And those are the fights that we must take to the government, not the one about how we're running out of petrol, because that, to a large extent, has been caused not by a shortage of HGV drivers, but by an outbreak of stupidity from the general public. Some people think I'm being hard on you. Well, I'm not, because you don't have to do it. Do not go queuing for petrol if you don't need it. It's that simple. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, let us speak to Andrew Allison, Chief Executive of the Freedom Association, because there's conversations going on currently in government um, that not only are there going to be visas issued to foreign drivers from the EU who can come in uh, and help out with the shortfall, but also the army uh, are being talked about as a possible stopgap measure as well. And Andrew knows a thing or two about that. Let's find out from him how this could work. Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Hello, Andrew. Are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? I can indeed. No, very, very nice to see you. Now, you've got a bit of experience of working in transport with the Army. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, well, I used to work at the Defence School of Transport at uh, Leckenfield, which is near where I am in Beverly. Um, I, I didn't train people on HGVs, but there was a massive amount of that going on. Mm. So, yeah, I've got some experience of that. Right. And as far as um, the Army's involvement is concerned, I mean, is the idea that they would literally be supplying drivers or would they be supplying tankers? And, and in whichever way that works, how would it work? Well, I think they could do a, mul- a multiple number of those sort of things uh they could provide tankers i mean that that certainly is possible uh they certainly could provide uh, drivers because they do train soldiers how to drive tankers mm. as well as training absolutely dozens and dozens of soldiers per day in how to drive uh, large goods uh, goods vehicles but of course they also have defense driving examiners who who examine these soldiers and they could be brought into the testing stations the civilian testing stations uh, to, to help with the backlog there, because we all know that DVLA has been uh, pretty useless in the past year, year and a half, in, a, in many different ways, not just issuing driving licences, but also in actually testing people. Mm. And that's why we found ourselves in, in this problem, at least well, at least that's part of the problem uh, that, that we found ourselves in, uh, and that's because of the lack of testing that's been going on. Yeah, well, lack of testing. Also, I know for a fact, because people have told me in, in the ways that we've been covering um, the, the difficulties in seeing doctors, a lot of medicals have not been done. I know of taxi drivers, I know of HGV drivers who've said, look, we can't get a medical in order to re, uh, uh, reissue our licence because the doctors won't see us. So that's an issue as well. DVLA, simply speaking, is not fit for purpose right now. It's not working. It's a 17-storey building in Swansea, which is practically sitting empty. Yes, it is. And uh, I mean, there's also the difference between class two and class one drivers. I mean, to put this in simple terms, a class two driver is someone who drives um, a large goods vehicle, but it's just basically a rigid. If you want to drive a trailer, drive an articulated lorry, then you need a class one license. Mm. Now, we could be doing something about transferring those people from class two to class one by taking tests. Mm. But of course, this costs money. It could cost a couple of grand to be able to do that. But this is a this is an easy fix. Yes. If the government wants wants to step in to try and, uh, and and help stop this shortage. Well, I was fascinated to read a piece uh, because I heard had heard this version of events as well uh, over the weekend that basically there was a meeting that was held. BP executives took to uh, uh, to a cabinet uh, discussion about the sort of the general overview of what was going on in the petrol supply business. And they said that basically over the course of the last few months, there had been sh- shortages in certain places um, but they hadn't been causing massive problems they had had to close a few uh, forecourts temporarily this particular meeting and the details of it were apparently leaked and the accusation is that they were leaked um, by a man called Rod McKenzie who you might know uh, who is now the head of the Road Haulage Association I've spoken to him many times on this show very much of an EU lover very much of a Ramona Um, he's denying it saying there's no evidence that I did that Um, but there's an awful lot of sort of what you might call Brexit exhaust around this issue isn't there? Well, there is. Yeah. I mean, there were nearly sort of 43,000 there about EU uh, uh, lorry drivers in the UK in 2019 before the pandemic. That's gone down to about 34,500 now. So there has been a reduction in the number of drivers from the EU, but that's been because of COVID, really, not because of Brexit. But I mean, the total number of, of lorry drivers has reduced from 2019 from over 303,000 to around 232,000 now. So there's definitely a reduction in the amount of people who are driving, and that can be for a, for a variety of reasons. But, I mean, on reports that I've read, Mike, the average age of a lorry driver is 55. Right. So an ageing workforce is certainly part of it. And if you want to privately train as, as an HGV driver, it costs a lot of money. Mm. 
and that puts people off. And Ian Duncan Smith wrote a good article in the, I think it was the Mail on Sunday yesterday, yes. where he said when he was working pension secretary, they tested this out. Uh, and and they put the courses up uh, online. People actually did take those courses and pass those HDV uh, courses. It wasn't that British people just don't want to do the job. It's that many people can't afford to train to do the job. No, and, that's and, an, an, and I'm an told they've also made it more complicated by having this sort of CPC course, uh, which is a kind <laughs> of competency course, which is added on top, is it not, of the actual driver's licence? Um, I don't really know much about that, Mike. I've got, uh, I've got to be honest, but I think that, that there are uh, sort of uh, other complications uh, at play here, uh, and you've mentioned them to do with uh, with, with medicals. Um, you, you've, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of various issues here. This is not just about Brexit. In fact, it's virtually nothing to do with Brexit. It's got a lot to do with COVID. It's got a lot to do with the fact that even before COVID and Brexit we were still short of around about 76,000 lorry drivers in the UK. This has been a storm that's been brewing for many years and no one's really got to grips with this. I mean, if you look at the facilities that are available for drivers um, around the country, they're pretty poor. I'm told that's true, yeah. Yeah, the paying conditions have been pretty poor in the past. And of course, that has been exacerbated by cheap foreign labour coming across and filling the shortages. So the, the only answer really, especially for supermarkets, who, quite frankly, have been raking it in during the pandemic. Um, they, they paid back, I think it was over £2 billion right. in business rates relief. I mean, the, the supermarkets are not short of money. It's about better pay and conditions. Yes. And but, that's, but, that's exactly why people, people but that's exactly why people voted for Brexit. And so you think you have to look towards the, 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 um, the, the haulage mm-hmm. owners and, as you say, the big supermarkets, because apparently an awful lot of the drivers who would have been driving tankers are now driving for Tesco's and others because they've been offered sign-on bonuses and better make money. I mean, I've been hearing from all sorts of people, as I say, in the last week or so, that the, the prices uh, for, for or, or wages, rather, have doubled. For, for HGV drivers. They were getting £9 an hour, now getting 18 You know, they're not, uh, they may not be very happy about the conditions that they've got, but there's also, there's IR35 issues with the tax people, with HMRC telling people they can't be freelance anymore. There's tax issues. There's all manner of things. But something you said that resonated with me, Andrew, when you said this has been a problem that's been hanging around for a while, nobody's fixed it. That seems to be the problem that we've got in almost every area of our infrastructure, including the energy supply chain, including food, including uh, petrol. You know, there's no sort of inbuilt elasticity, it seems to me. No, no, you're absolutely right on that. Uh, I mean, we've got also so many different issues, so many different problems that are facing us at the moment. And it's as if the government is just not prepared for anything. Uh, And again, I'll refer back to that article that Ian Duncan Smith uh, wrote for the Mail on Sunday yesterday, where he said the government's not really judged that much on their manifesto uh, promises uh, and and delivery, but they are really judged on how they handle a crisis, the unexpected events. We weren't prepared for a pandemic. We're certainly not prepared for a shortage of lorry drivers. Although I do have to say that when it comes to uh, to filling stations, I'm not seeing queues, not where I live. Mm. Maybe a little bit brisker than usual, but I'm not seeing queues of, uh, of, of cars coming out of petrol stations. So I think that the message that there really is not a crisis, because there isn't a crisis. No. When I filled up on Friday morning, I filled up because my tank was just above a quarter full. And that's what I'd normally do anyway. Um, and there certainly wasn't the queue then. 
So um, I think people just need to be sensible about these things. I do agree with you. You know, there's too many idiots around who just think, oh, there's a crisis. We're going to run out of fuel. Let's all go down. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the idea that you're going to turn up in a car with seven jerry cans, as we've seen over the course of the weekend, and somebody filling up, you know, seven jerry cans and then driving around with them in the back of the car. You just think, apart from the fact it's entirely a very idiotic and dangerous thing to do, it's incredibly selfish. I think it's also illegal. I think you are restricted on the amount of, uh, of petrol you can actually have in, in, in your car, so they're probably breaking the law as well. But it, it's, a, it, it's, it, it's a crazy response. Uh, there is not a fuel shortage in this country. There are some issues at getting the fuel to filling stations, yeah. but these are small issues. They are not huge issues. It's not affecting every filling station around the country. No. Supermarket shelves, some are empty, some are not. The vast majority of supermarkets that I visit in my area the shelves are full. Yeah. Occasionally, there is one supermarket, which I won't name, where the shelves seem to be permanently empty. <laughs> but I think that's to do with that. Well, it's Morrison's, actually. I will name them. Mate, Morrison's, does, Morrison's does seem to have a problem, certainly in my local Morrison's. Right. Once you see an item missing, it seems to be missing for about the next two or three weeks. Right. And I think that that's an internal issue inside that supermarket. But I go to other supermarkets, Asda, Little, Aldi, Tesco, other places like that, and there aren't any problems at all on the supermarket shelves. So people need to stop panicking. Yeah. There's nothing to panic about. We can sort the HGV driver problem out. It just, just requires some effort, and then everything will just go back to normal again. Yeah, exactly right. Very well said, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed. Sensible people, you see, say sensible things and act sensibly. And that's what the world needs. They need more people like Andrew Allison, more people like those who listen to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. He's chief executive of the Freedom Association. Look at this list of people who are apparently missing HGV driver shortages across Europe and beyond. Poland, 124,000. United Kingdom, 100,000. United States, 60,000. Germany, 60,000. France, 43,000. Spain, 15,000. Italy, 15,000. The list goes on. There's no shortage of stuff. There is a difference in the way that certain things are being handled, in the way that certain things are being delivered. If you go to your local Tesco's and they haven't got any sour cream, buy some creme fraiche. If they haven't got any bananas, get some apples. If they haven't got any haggis, buy some sausages. You know, don't panic. Whatever you do, don't panic. Got it? Let us say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday. Peter, very good morning. Morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I rather like the day of the nitwits um, as a headline. Um, I think that sums up Britain in 2021 rather well. Well, the comparison was with the day of the Triffids. Mm. That's something that people thought was harmless to begin with uh, and even quite comical and turned into something very serious. Yeah. We are indeed in the, in the age of the nitwits. And you're concerned quite rightly about people gluing their buttocks to the hard shoulder of the M25 or whichever chosen motorway it is today. But I'm just as concerned about uh, Mr. Johnson gluing 
his buttocks to the to, to the prime minister's chair in the cabinet room uh, because he is he has swallowed whole the entire agenda uh, of the green zealots and he he pumps it out in speeches and he puts it into law and ever since parliament passed with i think two votes against the climate change act this country has been pursuing a policy of national suicide uh, uh, what I've said, and I'll stick to this, is that there's no point arguing against the people who advocate this because they don't argue. They are, uh, they, it's, it's as pointless as, as it would be to argue against the Spanish Inquisition. All they want to do to anybody who opposes them is to, is to burn them at the stake with yeah. the carbon-free, a carbon-free stake with carbon-free <laughs> fuel. Uh, so I wouldn't actually, while burning, increase the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's pointless arguing with them. I, I don't even know if they're right or wrong. I, I, I don't. I don't try anymore. But I simply point out the things which are happening thanks to their policies, which even on their own terms do not make sense. No. Uh, particularly the the destruction of the of Britain's coal burning power capacity, uh, which is immediately cancelled out by the enormous and fantastic, colossal, super super califragilistic, whatever it is, development of coal powered power stations by the Chinese. Mm. Uh, so it doesn't make any difference. Uh, and, th and then there is the, the, the other problem we face, which is that we really do need uh, some sort of steady power supply in this country on which we can rely. And the only one which would get past the, the scrutiny uh, of the bottom gluing fanatics uh, is nuclear power. Yeah. And we ought to be building it. And I, actually, I, I looked it up the other day. I've been advocating this specifically since 20. Of six, uh, when I pointed out that we waste billions of pounds on maintaining a, a, a Cold War superpower nuclear deterrent when we're not a superpower and the Cold War is over. And if we really want to maintain our independence, not least from Russia, and defend ourselves from political threats from Russia, we'd be much, much more uh, wise and practical if we built independent nuclear power stations, a, a large fleet of them, uh, which enabled us to withstand the gas shortages and the shortages of wind, and the permanent shortage of sunshine, which for some reason afflicts these islands. Yes. Uh, but we, the, it, nothing, whatever, has happened, except that it, 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 we retire nuclear power stations or are preparing to retire them, and we make deals with the Chinese to build vast uh, nuclear power stations, which I suspect will never be finished, and we don't adopt the much more sensible policy of building quite a lot of small ones, which can be bought pretty much off the shelf without anything like the fuss, because we won't resolve ourselves into any policy. If we've got to accept this, that the, the Green Zealots are in charge of everything, and I, I think we have, because any voice raised against them is immediately flattened, then that's what we should be doing as a country if we have any sense. No sign of it. Well, this is the thing, and I mean, I have to say there was sort of peak incredulity from my point of view last week when Boris Johnson goes all the way to America to address the United Nations and have a sort of summit meeting with Joe Biden about climate change even as we are running out of energy uh, and, and we don't have enough wind energy because there's not enough wind. We don't have enough gas because we didn't store any of it. You know, petrol uh, seems to be in short supply because we don't have enough HGV drivers. And you think to yourself, you know, when the campaign against CO2 has reached its peak, we then find that we haven't got enough CO2 uh, well, to actually uh, operate the country. And you go, there's something slightly bizarre going on here. It is beyond It is beyond satire, but then this country has for a long time been beyond satire. But let us respond rationally and say, all right, these, these conditions prevail. It was a grave political mistake to close the storage, the rough field which we yeah. stored natural gas. It should be put right. It, it was a mistake to close down 
coal-fired power, and it should be put right by building more nuclear stations, or indeed more, more natural gas stations. So those, although they're very popular with governments at the moment, are actually uh, great producers of CO2 and are, are by no means carbon neutral, let alone the banks of diesel generators mm. we now use to save our, our electrical bacon quite often, apparently. Yes. So but if, if, if you want to say, right, we're, we're, going to, we're going to fit in with this green agenda, we're not going to increase our carbon footprint, but we're going to have stable power than nuclear power stations, has to be it. But there's, there's no there's no rationality. Again, when the, the, the HGV driver's shortage, it doesn't take much uh, research to find out there are several reasons for this. It, it, it afflicts mm. quite a lot of countries in the European Union. Now, there's no doubt at all that part of the reason for it is our exit from the EU. Drivers and vehicles, indeed, can no longer easily cross into this country, and we have lost uh, some capacity as a result. And, and, quite a lot of uh, speed of delivery as well. It's ludicrous to pretend this isn't happening. Mm. But other things are very important as well. For instance, the, the Inland Revenue's decision to, to pretty much prevent people from claiming to be self-employed and to, and to demand that they are employed and pay the higher taxes involved has put a lot of people off driving. Yeah. The conditions in which people have to put up with the driving, I, most of us would not put up with them. You're away from home for a long time. There's nowhere decent to stay. You're, it's often not terribly safe. And the pay is not very good. Mm. So these things need to be sorted out as well. And the other thing which, is, which has contributed hugely to this is the, is the government response to COVID uh, and the resulting staying at home of large numbers of people who've discovered they don't much like the jobs they used to do. Oh, uh, interestingly they, enough, they won't, they, won't, they won't go back to them. Well, the other, the other issues... It's a which, huge which, problem which affects, affects, afflicts everything. Yeah. And particularly, by the way, afflicts the civil service, which is, is operating, I should think, at about one-tenth mm. of its previous not very great efficiency because they cannot be persuaded to go back to the office where all the records and stuff are which enable them to work properly. Yeah. Now, I've been speaking to people over the last couple of weeks. And in fact, I alerted everyone to the fact that the DVLA was not working terribly well about a month ago before any of this happened because now any request that you put to the DVLA takes a minimum of three to four months to come back. Um, and to try and uh, renew an HGV license is taking as long as 10 months at the moment because everybody's well, working from home. Um, and I you've also... So. I mean, it's, it's curious. I mean, maybe that's... So. I, mean, I had a recent experience with the DVLA, which was the opposite of that. I was amazed at the speed with which they re responded to a license renewal. But I, 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 so I can only speak as I find. I'm mm. sure that what you say is true, but it strikes me that the section which is concerned with this is one which is, one which is yeah. in trouble. Yeah. But no, in any case, no department can work as well with, with a lot of its people working from home as it does uh, with, with them all working in the office as they should. And it's time people went back to work. And the, 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 these things all go together. The, f the fuel shortage is very peculiar. It seems to have been brought into, into being by a leak. Yes. Uh, who leaked it and why has to be one of the big political questions of our time. But the, once it's perfectly true, once people have started to panic, there's nothing you can do about it. I think actually they should sell piles of lavatory paper at petrol stations <laughs> so that people can be spared panic about that. Well, and actually, some, I mean, one need, of the most people one, need to start queuing now for the new Bond film. Well, exactly right. I mean, one of the, the things of that too, one, of, one of the things that was actually rather um, smart that one of the fuel companies did was to immediately impose a thirty-pound. Uh, you know, top end ceiling on how much fuel you could get. And as far as I know, because I happened to stop at one on the way home yesterday uh, from Sussex because there was no queue, uh, it means there's people that don't queue up because you don't queue up if you can only get £30 worth of fuel, which pure, which proves that the people queuing up probably didn't really need to. Yeah, doesn't that tell you something about the price of fuel that £30 of fuel isn't worth queuing up for? <laughs>
Yeah, well, exactly right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the steps can be taken, but then you get uh, people can turn quite nasty, can't they? Uh, oh well, there were, there were punch-ups. There were people fighting. Saying no. I don't understand what the what I've said this to you before, though, Peter. That I'm really quite concerned about this rather headlong kind of. Um, almost stampede to consumerism now because it's gone beyond just wanting to have everything and i wonder if it's about the expansion of credit i wonder if it's because people don't appear to be any wealthier necessarily than they were 10 years ago but people seem to have to have everything and they have to have it now you know you have to order it on amazon and get it tomorrow you know you can't just have you know um one phone you have to have all sorts of other bits and pieces as well you have to have 25 different kinds of cereal you know you have to have all sorts of different forms of pasta it is. I remember when I went to live in the United States, the huge variety of things which you didn't need or want in the supermarkets. Yeah. It's 30 or 40 different kinds of, of, of cereal instead yeah. of, of five or six. And right. get used to it rather remarkably quickly. But I, I think there, this is actually a, a, a subject people don't like to talk about, but I think it's one of the features of the, the collapse of religion in mm. our society. What do people believe in? There's extraordinary cults. Almost cargo cults of consumer goods that you absolutely have to have. The, the one most mystifying to me has always been the, the, the one for what I call gym shoes. Yeah. Uh, uh, trainers. Yeah. Uh, insisting that they have to be box fresh and a certain make and type. Uh, you must have been to Las Vegas where, it, 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 apart from all the gambling, uh, there are almost temples to all the big uh, fashion brands. Yes. Standing, you know, they, they, they look like temples as if it's a form of worship. There is something wrong with it. But the, the power of, of advertising in, in our society is so huge, from product placement on television programs and in, and in films to the, to, to the endless, relentless promotion of things. And I always recommend to people they should read a very brief, very witty, clever uh, book by Vance Packard called The Hidden Persuaders, uh, which explains just how much effort has been devoted by how many very, very clever people uh, to form our minds and form our tastes. And what the, the book written in the, in the mid-50s ends with a warning, that, uh, which of course has been completely borne out, that these techniques are now going to be applied to politics. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they, well they plainly are. They plainly have been during COVID with some of the advertising that even we carry on our station, uh, oh, which is all about, fun. you know, can you look somebody in the eyes and tell them that you haven't been vaccinated? And it's um, brilliant. It works. And it, 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 all this stuff, let's do this, you know, it, 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 is, is the new slogan. Yes. Let's, not you must, or, or it's let's do yes. this. We're all doing it together. Let's right. go. This, that, and the other. But it's not just that. It's actually persuading people. That the new Labour, for instance, was an advertising man's creation. Beyond doubt, yes, uh, it, it, it was as ridiculous as instant mashed potato, one of the most unnecessary products ever produced. <laughs> only, only worse. I mean, ultimately, instant mashed potato doesn't do you any harm, whereas New Labour, I think, did quite a lot. Well, they did, but, and, and they I, also, and they also then morphed into blue uh, conservatism, didn't they? Well, uh, or, or pink conservatism, or yeah. whatever colour you want to give to it. Yes, I, the Conservative Party is now the new Labour Party. Yeah. That's, that's Keir Starmer's big problem. He, his, his occupation's gone. His technicolour dream coat's been stolen. Yeah, but the, the job, the job <laughs> of new, the leading new Labour has, has been taken over by, of all people, uh, Alexander Pfeffel Boris Johnson. Yes. Uh, he, he does it, it seems to me, remarkably well. He is the heir to Blair. He really much, is. Much more effective out of Blair than, than, uh, than David Cameron was, who tried to be. Right, exactly right. Let's speak about um, uh, the atheism-Christianity debate, because I see that you were writing about Worcester College at the weekend. Oh, yeah. um, what's been going on there? 
Well, there was a, a Christian conference there, and I, I don't know what happened in this conference. I wasn't there, um, and the people who were there aren't talking. And it may be that some of those there had had views which quite a lot of people might find a bit hard going. But then Christianity examined closely is quite hard going. But that's not the point. Well, as long when, as you're not Archbishop Welby, he doesn't seem to believe when, much in Christianity. When, <laughs> when returning students came to the building, they found traces of this conference. Some leaflet had been left lying around. They said, they said, good heavens, this terrible thing has happened. There have been Christians in our college, as if they as if they discovered a plague of cockroaches right. or, or locusts or something and and they everybody then apologized and said how terrible uh, we've actually had christians in the college of all things for goodness sake christians in a college at oxford university and my suggestion was okay well it's it, it happens to be the case that oxford university is is a christian foundation in all characteristics all the colleges have chapels they all originally set up to teach the christian religion so it's slightly ridiculous to get so upset about it but if they we have now reached the point uh, where Christianity is now offensive uh, to people, uh, why don't they conduct an exorcism ceremony? All get themselves up in black robes and hoods, <laughs> go around chanting "Imagine," uh, and spraying the place with sanitizers to, to drive away all, all traces of, of Christianity using some unholy water as well. Yes. Why don't they just admit it? Why, why don't, don't places like Oxford University and, and all the other parts of Britain, which are supposedly still officially Christian, say, "Right, okay." That's over. We're getting rid of it. We don't believe in this yeah. stuff anymore. And then people might find out what a post-Christian society really looks yeah. like. And because I don't, I mean, I don't think it would be entirely out of the ordinary in this day and age if you were to to sign up at Worcester College as a student and say, the thing is, I'm a bit of a Satanist and I'd like to have um, a special Alistair Crowley uh, commemoration service uh, every Sunday evening, uh, at which we would probably sacrifice something, but just pretend. They'd probably say that was fine, but you can't. Sorry, have, but you can't, have, but you can't have a Christian conference. As long as it was a better, they, perhaps they could sacrifice a vegan sausage roll. Yes, something like uh, that. So it wasn't anything alive. I think maybe you would actually get not just uh, permission, but enthousi- enthusiastic support. I think there are, there are, isn't there a Satanist in one of the, one of the armed services, a Satanist chaplain? Uh, there and might be, I don't know. If, if there isn't yet, there will be soon. I, mean, I, I, I would rather hope there would be a Satanist chaplain aboard our nuclear missile submarines. Well, one would hope so. What better place for it? (laughs) But it does seem as though we have reached this point where it's government by, um, you know, very, very temporary measure. You know, let's not bother doing anything. I mean, everything that we're talking about now, the HGV uh, shortage, the the, the energy crisis, you know, the fuel problem, the worry about um, nuclear power, it's all as a result of no government really literally in the last 10 to 15 years really making any long-term plans for anything. Well, they haven't got any. They don't know what sort of society they want this to be. Uh, and the, pro- the problem with Britain is, for for a very long time, it's been drifting dead in the water because it, it's still technically it's still a constitutional monarchy, a, a, a vestigially Christian country, uh, a, a country of more or less Western values. But most of its governing class, a lot of its media and its education sector, don't believe in this stuff anymore. And so many of the things, one of the reasons for, for our education system being so terrible mm. is that it's halfway between. The revolutionaries wanted to turn it into a, a, a totally left-wing egalitarian education system, but they failed to do so. And uh, as a result, it's it's neither one thing nor the other, and the schools don't work. Whereas in, in properly uh, revolutionary countries, and one of the reasons why we had so many, for instance, Polish people coming over to work here is that after the communists took over, uh, they created very efficient education in the image of the sort of society they wanted. And people came out of the schools certainly very well educated in the sort of skills 
which made them employable, mm. which we can't do anymore. Half the problem in this country is we, we produce huge numbers of people who are pretty much unemployable yeah. uh, because the schools are so bad. And that's one of the symptoms of the, of the drift. We are, we are neither the country we used to be, nor are we the country the revolutionaries fully want us to be. So everything is, 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 is directionless and a mess. And, and the, the, the country is run along the lines of, of, of Gramscian Euro-communism. Uh, by an old Etonian who thinks he's a conservative. So you can imagine how confusing it must be in his head. Well, you can imagine also how exciting it's going to be in three days' time when furlough comes to an end. And you have, of course, been very outspoken about uh, furlough and how there would be a terrible price to pay. But you won't be surprised to know, Peter, that it's being hailed a great success. Um, I'm not quite sure what the measure is, um, but when it does come to an end, you'll hear lots of people saying how brilliant it was. Well, I wonder, I, it really is very difficult to tell uh, how big an effect it's going to have when it comes to an end. Um, and I'm reserving judgment, finally, on that. Obviously, one hopes that people will go back to work and full-time employment and the things they used to do. I, I really wish that the, 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 the damage of the past 18 months should be as little as possible. Mm. I can't help thinking that a lot of people will find at the end of this that they're they're no longer employed. And at the same time, a lot of people will find that the, the end of the, the boost to universal credit will be very hard to take. Uh, and they, they won't be able to make ends meet. I think there's lots of bad things being stored up at the moment. But I, I think it's, let's, let's wait, hope, uh, that, uh, that the end of furlough won't be as bad as I feared it would be. No. Who, who would wish on anybody uh, the end of a job which they relied on? But it has subsidised apparently 2.3 billion working days. And I'm still meeting people, even now, who have gone back to work sort of this week for the first time since a year ago in March. I find it extraordinary. Well, it is odd, because you and I went, you don't think you ever, you ever stopped. And I, I no. left the office for a few few weeks and, I, and then realised that, that there was nothing to stop me going back. But yeah, it's, it, it, it is extraordinary. I remember when I was an industrial correspondent, that this, half the stories we wrote were about the disastrous loss of working days yeah. as a result of strikes. But they, 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 they were mere pimples compared with the loss of working days, which mm. have been brought about by this. And I keep being told, no, it won't cost anything. No, you can borrow limitless money. And no, there won't be any inflation. Well, that one's turning out pretty fast not to be true. Mm. And no, there won't be any tax rises. Well, that one's also turning yeah. out pretty fast not to be true. And no, there won't be un any unemployment. Well, we'll see about that. Of course, no, there won't be any bad effect on the NHS. Well, nobody even pretends anymore that the NHS hasn't been completely uh, shattered in many in many ways by the by by the shutdown. I mean. Could it could it be you know call me old fashioned but could it be that one of the reasons we're short of people in various different sectors short of people to do jobs in certain sectors is because people have got rather used to not doing anything? I'm sure it is. Uh, if you pay people not to do things, if you pay people to stay at home, then then they will naturally get used to it. Mm. And for for a lot of people who don't particularly like their work, and many people, it's true, don't particularly like their work and never have uh, to be given the opportunity to 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 be paid for not doing it, to be paid for staying at home. Uh, it must have been a sort of paradise and it's going to be very hard for them to bring it to an end and I, one sympathises but, but there it is I, that, this could never have been sustained limitlessly I no. mean, people talk about cloud cuckoo land all the time the old cliche but actually this was cloud cuckoo land it was a place of fantasy and now it has to come to an end and we have to pay the price for it yeah. I, I hope it isn't too high
Yeah, well, I hope so too. Peter, great to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed. Mail on Sunday Economist, Peter Hitchens there, talking about um, a great many things, including, of course, the Day of the Nitwits, which does really feel like that's where we are, doesn't it? The Day of the Nitwits. What a great name uh, for Britain, as it is now. Now, there'll be those people out there who go, oh, well, it's Mike Graham, he's knocking Britain again. I'm not knocking Britain, right? I'm knocking the way uh, that Britain appears to operate right now. Britain is a great country, full of rather amazing people. However, there's also an awful lot of bloody idiots out there queuing for petrol. Stop it! The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, if you were one of the people queuing up on Friday, on Saturday, or on Sunday, if you were one of the people on the A20 as I drove back into London last night, blocking the entire three lanes of the road in order to queue up from the opposite side of the road, you are, in many ways, a complete and utter numpty of no use to man or beast. The idea that some petrol stations on Friday were selling three times as much petrol as they would normally sell. One place I know which apparently would normally do 8,000 litres sold 24,000 litres. And they were all people who were filling up their cars when they wouldn't otherwise normally do so. What is it about the panic that fills people with dread and they have to go out and queue for hours on end? Emma Kenny is here. I'm hoping she can give us a clue. Emma, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Now, um, is this a particularly British endeavour? I mean, I know that there have been crises in other parts of the world and you see people queuing up. I mean, my daughter, who lives in the Middle East, said, what has Britain turned into Lebanon? You know, where they haven't had any proper fuel for ages and people do genuinely queue up because they they literally haven't got any. But, you know, here it's not like that, is it? No, but it's the same conditioning. To some degree, there are different theories about why people panic by. So there's a scarcity theory, which is, oh, it's something's running out, therefore I need to have it. There's the human instinct, which is I need to protect the people that I love and mm. therefore those resources are really important. And then, of course, there's that permission base, which is other people are doing it, so I'm going to follow the herd. They're all really natural parts of being human. So after two years nearly of finding that stories in the press that are meant to occur, then fail to occur and vice versa, Mm. you can understand that people are primed to not trust. And so when you don't trust, you react from fear. And when you react from fear, you do things like panic buy, toilet roll and petrol, which is what we're seeing right now. Yeah, do you know, but it is one of those things, isn't it, that they say about the Brits, if you drive past something and there's a queue, you join the queue. I mean, I'm completely un-British in that sense. I hate queuing for anything. If I'm in a traffic jam, I immediately look at ways of getting out of it. You know, I just can't handle it. Um, but there are people who, when they see a queue, they want to sort of join in. What's that all about? Well, it's exactly the same when you think about rubbernecking, when there's an accident on the motorway and people will slow down, inevitably causing a massive tailback because they want to see things. It's just that human voyeurism. And I think that we are quite voyeuristic in our nature. So some people are natural followers. Some people are leaders. Like Mm. some people like you will put ways on because you just want to go through a crematorium to avoid the actual roads to get out of the queue. (laughs) That's the way that some people are, more leaders than followers. But it's completely normal, this behaviour, bizarrely. I know it's annoying for people. And I know that people probably have this archetypal individual who'll go, do it but research says you're more likely to do this kind of behavior if you're female young and you've got a kid because your nurture is desiring the protection of your offspring yeah so as much as people want to be really angry with individuals and i get it it's dead frustrating i was frustrated yesterday queued for ages to just get home because my petrol station's on the main road near my house and yeah it's frustrating but i also have this empathy because i think people have been really traumatized in the past few years
is. Mm. And also, there's this instinctual behaviour that makes us human, which is we don't want to miss out. We're scared of missing out. But is it also that we're now so used to being, you know, sort of in command of everything? You know, like we, we mm. now know that you can order something on Amazon and it can be delivered to your house tomorrow. You know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, and I'm not just going to make this into a sort of old git complains about, you know, it's not the way it <laughs> used to be. But, you know, if I wanted to buy something when I was a teenager, I used to have to have a conversation with my dad and say, you know, well, can you either lend me the money? I wanted to buy a camera once. I remember my first sort of SLR camera because I was quite interested in photography. Uh, and I went to the shop and they went, oh, you can get higher purchase. And my dad was like, you're not doing higher purchase. That's going into debt. I'm not allowing it. it. Wouldn't happen. So I had to save up the money from the job that I had before I could actually buy it. You know, and that probably took me a few months. Whereas now you'd simply order it on Amazon. It would be there tomorrow. Um, you'd be taking pictures with it, you know, two hours later, having worked out how it, how it, how it worked. And, you know, so there's this instant gratification thing going on. I think people can't imagine going without stuff. I agree. And I think that delayed gratification is something that we can encourage more because I think what you've just described is what makes young people feel more patient. Patience is the gift of patience. It makes you realize that it's worth working towards something to achieve. It gives it a sense of worth. So what you've described is delayed gratification and it is good for us. But I think we've got so used to everything being immediately available that we feel annoyed and as if it's not effective in our world unless we get it right now. But what you've talked about, that kind of 1970s, 80s experience, experience is something that I think led to a lot of people becoming incredible hard workers because yeah. you didn't expect everything to Well, work. I'm one of them, you know. Yeah, same. Because, you know, but, but, but I mean, I, I don't have a problem with, with, with getting things immediately now and that's all fine and dandy. But I do, and I, I've been saying this a lot recently, that I'm slightly troubled by the amount of stuff that we can now have, you know, like yeah. I say this, like for you go into the cereal aisle of a, of a supermarket and there's a hundred different kinds of cereal, you know, I mean, we don't need a hundred different kinds of cereal. There's about 55 different kinds of aero that you can now get. You know, there's the green one, the orange one, there's the one with nuts in it. There's the one that tastes like marshmallow. You're going, just give me some aero. What do I need, you know, all these different types of it for? Yeah, but I think as well, just aside from the fact that there is immediacy and accessibility and availability, because that does exist today, and also people are used to being able to get what they desire, as you said, with mm. that immediate effect. When you actually think about the last couple of years and the way that people's mentality has been, on one level, we're really angry with people for believing what they've said, albeit a small thing in the papers initially talking about the possibility of these issues being that petrol would be scarce, and then people believe it and react. But then we've expected the same people for the last few years to do exactly what they've been told in the papers, even with the ever-changing rules and regulations. So you've got, on one level, a mindset where we're saying, do this, follow this, accept this. And then the next minute, when something goes in the press, where it equally says, oh, there might be fuel shortages, and people do this, follow this, and accept this, we are angry with them for that kind of behaviour. And the problem is we've conditioned our society to follow in that way. Yeah. And it's almost like there needs to be more diligence in the way that people report these issues because you can't go back on it once it's said. And I'll say that for the reason that we have seen constantly in the government people coming forward and saying, this is never going to happen. And then it happens. So the consequences, people do not trust now. And rightly so, because they have too much evidence to say, if I trust, that trust may be tarnished by people reverting to a lie that they've made up or saying a truth that wasn't going to be a truth yeah. these things are really powerful to us and our psyche has been affected dreadfully in the past few years and, by do, it. and do you think that most recently because of the whole covid business that, yeah. that, that, that we now do you think our sort of faith in stability has been somehow yeah. shaken 
you know, security is a myth. My job in life is to teach people that security is a myth because you think that you're safe and then something horrible goes wrong or you lose someone that you love. And it's really important to have that resilient mindset. But absolutely what you're talking about is completely true. It's the fact that people don't feel the level of trust that they felt prior to the way that the world fell and their security has been challenged, not just on a physical level, but on a social level, on a friendship level, on an environmental level, even on a day-to-day just experience of the world, going to work, etc. It's all been challenged and nothing that we knew two years ago is the same now. So that's a massive shift mindset. I was, look, I'm as annoyed as the next person when people go with jerry cans and fill up 33 of them on the forecourt. Right. That's completely out of order. But in the same sense, it's exactly the same motive when people go and buy tins of food or toilet roll. It's because we have this protective instinct and desire to look after those we care for most, which is the self and those closest to us. And with respect, people can say, protect everybody else it's not really how human beings work we are tribal we are individuals mm. who've grown up with our so-called tribe experience in our family and we protect them before the others rightly or wrongly that's yeah. just how we're hardwired i mean i'm surprised they didn't have any of those campaigners out you know clapping for ambulances and saying that they should be allowed in to get to the because suddenly that all went out the window you know if you're in an ambulance trying to get fuel i didn't see anybody right. getting out of the way right and that's key isn't it that's where the whole irony of these kind of circumstances are what we say is protect everything and look after everybody else whilst we have everything but the minute that that's get compromised we're going to be fighting at the front of the queue to achieve what we want and like i said you're fighting instinct part of this is fighting instinct you know as humans 30 percent of us have got the warrior gene for example so we are ready to some degree to have a battle and like i said if you're a parent then you're just thinking about the priority needs of those around you, particularly your children. So I do have sympathy and empathy, although it annoys me as well. Yeah. And what is it about toilet paper and pasta, by the way? (laughs) I mean, you know, call me old fashioned again. There's all sorts of other things you can eat apart from pasta. There's all manner of different kinds of rice you can buy, potatoes, you know. I mean, even if you didn't have any carbs, it wouldn't be the end of the world. And I mean, without wishing to be too graphic, you, you know, if you haven't got any toilet paper, there are other alternative methods, shall we say. Yeah, I've never really got the toilet paper there. I think the the kind of pasta and dried foods, I think people just make that quick assumption. It's cheap and it lasts for like 100 years. Same with tin products. (laughs) It's almost like you you think you can make a boat out of it or something. That's right, yeah. At worst, I'll be able to weave something with this. But I think when it comes down to the toilet paper, they've done research on that and that's about comfort. That's about a sense of security and comfort. So we look at toilet paper as something that's really sacrosanct to our experience. And that's why, as you said, in other countries, you don't even use it. But in the UK, for us, it symbolizes that we have some control over our environment and some com- comfort within our environment mm. and on a socioeconomic level as well it reminds us that we have something available to us that we might not have had 25 30 years ago you know tracing paper toilet paper used to be the stuff that we used to get when yeah. i was a kid. when i was at what school that, was, that was all they had at school that's right that was the key that was whatever was cheapest whereas nowadays we've made we've made luxury affordable because of all the bargain basement stores that make it more accessible. So we've got more used to that. Mm. And that's one of the really interesting things that's happened in the last two decades. But that's what I mean as well, because we live in a society now, and I was talking to Ben Habib about this the other day, the taxes are going up, uh, prices are going up, inflation's starting to kick in. So all of the things that we've been used to having, which were quite affordable and were cheaper, are now starting to get more expensive. So people are going to have to start thinking about what they have and what they can have and what they can do, you know, because in the end... If you have to cut your cloth, like energy bills going through the roof in the uh, in the winter months coming up, people are going to have to stop heating their homes as much as they did or find alternative ways of doing that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really scary time for a lot of people, particularly when you look at the cuts in things like universal credit as well. You know, that £20 makes mm. a lot of difference to people in their world. And yeah, absolutely. The idea that our taxes are going up, energy prices are going up. What could we expect? We're going into a double depression, aren't we? That was always going to be the case. And I think... Don't that start some... saying that. People will be rushing out and buying even more oh, toilet yeah. paper, for heaven's sake. That's right. That will be our fault today. That's what's <laughs> happened. And but, oh, but interestingly, we'll both be starting our own toilet paper company. Yes. That's what well, we that's do. the other thing. You know, I was talking to one of our listeners who called in today from Northern Ireland who said there was no problem in Northern Ireland queuing. Um, some people in Scotland have said both versions of events, but in a lot of parts of Scotland, no big problem with queuing. Yes. And uh, not yeah. that much of a problem in parts of the north of England. So somebody said, is it possible that it's just people who are too affluent who can afford to go and fill up their cars whenever there happens to be what they perceive to be a shortage? So they go, right, yeah. uh, here's my credit card um, yeah. and just fill it up. Don't care. That's actually, that's true. So what we know from research is when you go and bulk back anything the people that you're taking from are poor children and the elderly because poor families cannot afford to book by and the elderly cannot either mm. and they can't even get them home a lot of the time in the elderly because they don't have the transport means in the right. way that we would if we were a young family so you're absolutely right and I always say that if you want to have a mindset where you try to do as little harm it's whenever you're doing those actions and thinking well I could get another 15 pounds worth of petrol or I could buy another 15 tins of beans just remember that that's taking from a really poor family who are already struggling enough or yes. somebody who's an elder in our society that just hasn't got the access to those kind of funds and like you just said bbc putting up the license fee for people who were over 70 you know it's going to be an issue where people who would ordinarily get it free mm. are now going to have to pay that money comes from somewhere and people have ill got it at this moment in time and are going to be paying a lot more out in bills soon and if you are comfortable and affluent enough and lucky enough to be in that circumstance where you can do those things then maybe just take a step back and realize you'll always have that extra money yeah. so yeah. things will always be possible for you they're not possible for that poor kid who isn't going to be able to eat because their parents haven't been able to afford to book by. And no, of course. And you can also make the argument for people who drive taxis for a living, people that yeah. drive trucks for a living, van yeah. drivers, delivery people. You know, they're all suffering as a result of you being selfish enough to think you should fill up your car, even though you don't really think you're going to use it that much. And you've now got enough petrol for the next month. Well, great. But what about the guy that can't now work because he can't get any petrol? Yeah, and also I think that side of just even though we're calling people selfish, I think if they reframe it as, okay, I'm being protective. So it's not necessarily that I'm a really horrible human being who's going out to just use people in a way and abuse them in a way because they can't have an I can. Mm. To some degree, if you reframe that and be like, okay, I'm just a really protective parent. I'm a really protective person. I'm really concerned about my family, but actually that's a fear and not a reality I need to deal with. So mm. maybe I need to access that. I need to chill out with those fears, take a step back, take a breath, enjoy what I've got, be proud of the fact that I can go and afford to do these things, but that I don't need to. Yeah. That's the key to being a good human being. Well, I, think that is, I think that is the point. Just, you know, get enough for, for what you need, not right. what everybody else should have that you can't now let them have because you want all of it. And I think that's that's the basis for civilised society, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Wouldn't it be lovely to live back in a civilised society? Well, I try to. I honestly do. I genuinely do. I mean, I, as I say, I stopped at a petrol station last night on the way up to London. And there was no queue. And they said, Thirst, please only take £30. And I went and I, and, it, and I tried to stop it like you do. And I got £30 and 22 pence. And I went yes. in and I said to them, I'm really sorry. I got 22 pence extra. And the girl behind the counter said, you know, there's lots of people coming in saying, oh, I'm sorry, I took 60 by mistake. And you're going, what's wrong with you? You said, yeah. 30, you know, you don't overshoot by 30 quid. You can overshoot no. by 30p, you know. Exactly. But people I, just yeah. take the mickey, don't they? No, yeah, but I think that having that civil interest is really important. Yeah. And certainly I was in Scotland on Thursday, Friday, and on Friday when I was driving back, there were just no issues at all. So right. it is definitely location-based. And people, like I said, in the north and certain areas, as you noted, aren't 
affordable, affordability wise, able to do what other people are doing in the South. So it is just remember, you know, we are here to kind of be part of a community. And in the past two years, the one thing that I'd say we need to acknowledge more than ever is that we need community more than ever Mm. to be happy and healthy. Because if there's one thing lacking right now, it is that sense of real connections in our local communities. Definitely. Emma, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Emma Kenny, psychologist there, talking a lot of sense about why people do the things that they do. And I'm hearing, by the way, I'm getting reports in from the southeast of England that there are still people queuing up at petrol stations, massive numbers of people queuing up at petrol stations. You don't need to do it. There is no shortage. Stop it. Just now. (laughs) 